Welcome to the Six Nations uh, Four Idle Hands. That's two numbers in the one sentence there, Terry. That's very it's impressive. Before, it's, our, it's our Six Nations preview. So what you can't also see on a podcast is I am wearing my Ireland shirt. Yeah, and I'm not. I've got a huge one upstairs. It's actually a, a really early one, sort of mid-90s, so it's before they started emblazing uh, sponsors' names all well, this across was the a, world. This was a Rugby World Cup 2019 one, which obviously didn't end that well for Ireland. But, uh, Indeed. <laughs> but you know what? I looked at, I mean, this is just a general thing on shirts for sport. I looked to buy a new Ireland rugby shirt, potentially, for, for, for this for the season, going back before Christmas time. And it's like oh, 95 euros or something for a shirt. That's, that's from there. So that's what, 80, 85 quid? Just yeah. ridiculous price. Like. Yeah. And, um, you know, so little uh, money ever seems to make it into uh, grassroots support of rugby, does it? it it's, yeah. it's basically bound up in bureaucracies and sponsors making a fortune out of it rather than. Um, yeah. Plus, they have these, you know, shirts that are kind of, what, I like this one's an old kind of old fashioned, you know almost like cotton rugby shirt but these kind of second skin shirts that are you know super tight and that doesn't really suit me I don't think so. yeah no no they're a wee bit too revealing for gentlemen <laughs> of our age Terry uh, so uh, we we do have a guest this week we've got um uh Irish uh, legendary uh lock forward Willie Anderson will he be on to talk about uh, uh his recent autobiography which is called crossing the line and he'll do a preview of the six stations for us but um uh, we've got a couple of other things to talk about, Terry, in the news, just quickly. Um, right. Sue Gray has finally spoken. Well, she did speak, but then she was heavily set, well, actually heavily censored, but there was you know, certain points to her to her notes that you know, she couldn't make comments on because these things were under investigation by the Met Police. And I think I, I actually read the document. It was only like 14 pages, and I downloaded it and read it all. And you could clearly tell, I think, that she was just, upset about the fact she couldn't say all she wanted to say and she clearly thought that what went on was just ridiculous yeah we, we really are through the looking glass now aren't we with uh, uh downing street refusing to um uh, say whether or not uh, people who've got fixed penalty fines for breaking the regs um when you know whether their details will be published or not so this is obviously no. paving the way for johnson to Regular yet again. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw the article. Uh, it was a Channel Four News the other night, and the interviewing was at Nadine Dorries. Yeah, and she was she was doing her best, Catherine Tate. I'm a bothered sort of impersonation, and it was just. I mean, she clearly didn't. She had to speak, I guess, because they have to speak the ministers. But she clearly didn't really want to, and he was pushing her, and she her her body language, her attitude was just horrendous. And yeah, but, there, there was some suggestion in social media that she was three sheets of the wind for those interviews. She was certainly rocking around the place. She was. She wasn't very steady on her feet, actually. And, of course, Boris legs off to Ukraine to try and distract him there. And, of course, the first question on the lectern is about the, the report sort of thing. So it's going to run and run, I think. I don't think it's finished yet. I thought Cole Starmer did have a few good lines from the boxes. Um, and, of course, we can't not mention uh, Mr Blackford from the SNP getting his red card. Indeed, indeed. It was all, it was a big setup, though, wasn't he? He knew he was going to get the boot there. But, I mean, why can you not um, accuse, um, you know, somebody like Johnson of lying in Parliament when he, it's quite obvious that he has um, either misspoken, in which case he hasn't apologised for it, or he hasn't told the truth. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, and it's kind of rebuttal of Starmer, he tried to accuse Starmer of having let um, Jimmy Savile off when he was the 
um, director of public prosecutions, which was also false. Now that was obviously that was really pulled out for the best of time, wasn't it? So um, I guess he'd been fed those that information together because he knew Starmer was going to attack him, so he, he pulled it up, and that was that. So, but what, what was even more shocking for me was the fact that he blew off Vladimir Putin for phone call and um, to do the statement at the House of Commons. So you can imagine that text message. Sorry, can't make it. Um, <laughs> about Ukraine, I'll phone you Sorry, later. Vlad. The week. <laughs> Sorry, Vlad. Sorry, Vlad, yeah. Catch you later on the week. Ciao, Boris. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, just a mess. And I think it's, unfortunately, now it's going to run and run, I don't think. And, uh, it it, it is. And, and they will eventually um, dispatch him when it suits them. But, but I, I don't think that moment is is just yet. I think we'll I don't have think to keep so. it longer. And something which has been out for a wee while, Terry, did you know that today is the centenary of the first publication of James Joyce Ulysses? And also it's James Joyce's birthday. I did not know that. So 1700 years today. Yeah, today, 1922, it was published. Have you read it? I, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we did it in school. And I, I, what did we do in school? We did. Yeah, we did, I think. But I can't, yeah. I think you, you, you'll have read it, though. I've read bits of it, but uh, it's tough going. I'll tell you, uh, we tip for anybody who's interested in reading it. Don't. Um, have a look on the uh, probably YouTube or the BBC's web- website. Um, the Sexy Priest, um, Andrew Scott, did oh. an abbreviated version of it uh, for radio some years ago. And what what you don't realise when you're reading through the book, because it you know it's not like he said this, she said that kind of thing. Uh, there are lots of different characters speaking in it, and it's only when you hear an actor, you know, relaying those characters' uh, words in, in you know, perhaps different voices or okay. different intonation that you actually get what's going on. Okay. So that's top tip for you there. It's, it's funny. Um, I for Christmas time I bought uh, my daughter's boyfriend this um, book by David O'Doherty. Um, called, it's called. I didn't realize at the time it was a child children's book called "We Robbed the Bank." So when you buy the book, you get the download version as well. So I just thought I'd listen to it because I quite like David Dockery, but he does it very well and he reads it like a, it like a story, but he has all the voices in it. So it's very good, actually. Uh, very, very funny. And um, But I hadn't realised it was a kid's book until I started listening to it. I thought, oh, but yeah. not finished. Four hours. Speaking of kids, Terry, um, kids sometimes aren't as intelligent as crows. Did you know that? I've heard this this morning that there's some sort of fancy thing for crows have been designed by the Swedes. Yeah, Swedish firm deploys crows to pick up cigarette butts. Those clever Scandinavians have uh, basically designed a machine that will dispense food to birds who bring cigarette butts that they've collected from uh, from the streets um, and dump it into the machine. Fantastic idea. I mean, it can only, only be the Swedish people. And I was trying to think of a Black Crows pun from the band. But I can't <laughs> yeah, Sting Me or something like that, or a remedy. Absolutely, absolutely. So. It's a remedy for um, um, a good um, road sweeping uh, kind of carry on. Um, oh, on you go. Yep. Uh, uh, the other uh, interesting thing about this article about the uh, the Crows is, you know, well, everybody kind of knows that they're kind of clever. But apparently there's a, a Caledonian, New Caledonian Crow that's as good as reasoning as a human seven-year-old, making them the smartest birds for this job. I don't know if they're getting it or whether the locals, the local Swedish crows are going to do the work. How, how do they know the crows are smart? Though? I, mean, I guess they, they give them little tests and things to do, I suppose. But 
yeah, it's mainly just, you know, give them a puzzle to solve and they get food at the end of it. It's like most people. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that thing with Wordle this week. You know, that they sold, the guy sold the Wordle for a seven figure sum to the New York Times. Have you tried that, by the way? Uh, no, no, I'm avoiding it because it just strikes me as a huge waste of time. So I'm not going there. It is. Unfortunately, my, my wife's very good at so she, she does it every night and you get six six goes. She does it in three or four every day. I do it. I takes me all six if I even bother to do it sort of thing. But it was amazing. It's such a small little program, and they're thinking it was probably ten million. He sold it for to the New York Times. So fair play to him, Mike. So. Yeah, yeah. And and there was a, apparently he designed it to um, uh, for his partner to basically give her something yeah. to do during lockdown. So uh, a great way of winding away the time. But I don't need it. I've got enough distractions and success. <laughs> Speaking of distractions, we've got um, our super duper guest for this week, all the way from um, Maharafeld. Is that where he's? Well, he's from. So he's from. So this is Willie Anderson. So rugby, Ireland rugby internationals. Willie's from Six Mile Cross, which is a very small village, a few miles from Oma, where I'm from. So we went to the same school, not the same time. He was a bit bit older than me. So, um, so I, my sister was at school, or would know him for sure for school. Um, he was well known in the town. Obviously, you know, he went on to play for Ireland and coach at various various levels. So, he is a bit of a local hero. Um, he's had an interesting life. Uh, obviously, through rugby, he's had a bit of tragedy in his life. He's had a bit of adventure. Um, the book is says quote called "Crossing a Line." Um, it kind of covers the whole matter of his, his life from from rugby through. I think he's had some tragedies in his private life. His son is currently a fashion designer who's done stuff for Harry Styles so it's a really interesting story and um, he, we contacted him and he was only too happy to come on and uh, he was a, a great laugh and a lot of good insights um, and we did a bit of a preview of Six Nations so here, here's uh, Mr Willie Anderson. So um, we'd like to welcome to the next episode of Four Idle Hands podcast uh, Willie Anderson so welcome Willie. Welcome, thank you, you very much. Good. Good. So um, we've got Willie on to talk about his book, uh, Crossing the Line, uh, which he's sort of co-written with, with Brendan Bannon, talk about sort of all things rugby in the past, and um, we're going to have a look at the forward to the Six Nations. So I, I've read the book, Willie, I, I have skipped a couple of chapters, not going to be honest, but um, the title is obviously a rugby sort of term, if you like, but for me, it's like the book has got so much in it. That's not rugby. It's all about, you know, there's a whole load of stuff in there. Obviously, the, your, your life, it's all laid bare, I think. so. Yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> it, was, <clears throat> it was actually, I, I, just retired, I just retired from Ulster Academy and I got a call from Brendan Fanning. Now, I had an inkling maybe four or five or six years ago with my son. He sort of put me in notion of it, dinner, but I never really pursued it in any way, you know, form of fashion. And, and he, he was the one that actually said, look, jolted and said, look, I'd love to write your book. You've got, you've got a story here. And um, he said, but you're going to have to, you know, chat to your, 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 your family and get them all on board and your siblings and all, because it's not going to work unless you do that. And I, and I said, well, you're going to have to think about it, you know, and talk to them. So I did, and uh, they, they sort of agreed. And then, um, and then we went from there. But in the meantime, he said, look, what sort of, what do you want out of this book? I said, well, I, I want a book. It's not just about rugby. I want it about life. I want it about a life, my life. And uh, I want it to be absolutely honest. And I don't want to be sycophantic or, you know, blowing smoke. I want it to be an honest appraisal of my, of my life. 
Okay. <clears throat> the good, bad, and the ugly, and um, and fairness, in fairness, he did a brilliant job. Well, I mean, certainly that. I mean, it's, I mean, was it difficult? I mean, I'm talking about obviously the accident in '92. You know, you know, you go back every year to to, to visit the grave and so on. That must have been hard to kind of bring that up again. Or, but I guess it's always in your mind anyway. Maybe I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it, it it was one of the hardest things to 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 uh, to uh, sort of explore again and uh, and go back to. And I had to, you know, and, and, and I had to ring uh, Glenn's father and, you know, get permission because I mm. wanted to do that as well. And that was very difficult, but they were very, uh, they were very generous and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're very humbling to me about the whole thing. And uh, I got a little letter when I did send them the book about, you know, remembering Glenn. And it, it obviously had a perverse effect on my, on my life uh, as, as I write a few other things did. However, yeah. that's, you know, that's part of life. You know, people have gone through this and it's not yeah. just me. It's, it's just about sometimes the effects of these things. And yeah, um, and yeah it, it was a difficult, it, it, some of the parts of the book was, were very difficult to go back to. However, the majority of it was, was really enjoyable to go back to and, and talk to people I hadn't talked to in 40 years. So it was... It was, it was, I know that a lot of books start in the change, start in the change rooms and end the change rooms <laughs> and then between us rugby, but I, I didn't want that. I didn't want it just about rugby. I wanted it about my family and my life oh. um, and what rugby, you know, brings you and some, a lot of rugby, uh, like any sport brings you highs and lows. Uh, that certainly comes across the whole whole story, and I said you know all the all the stories that people will know of you for sure, which I'm sure we'll cover shortly. But um, it does seem a very complete story and of, of of the Willie Anderson. So, so we um, I don't think obviously you are slightly older than me, not much. So we went, but we went to the same school. And what hit me in the book was the acknowledgement at the start. So I opened the book up and you acknowledged uh, Jackie Reed and Dick Hines, the two coaches at school, and I thought. They were my coaches when I was at playing rugby at school as well, you know. So I kind of hadn't appreciated that they'd been there that long. So, so, so what what kind of got you into rugby? Was it just coming to school and then getting involved in that, or? Yeah, well, whenever I was at primary school in Six Mile Cross, literally there was absolutely no. I don't even know what rugby football was. I didn't, you know, it was I I I played football. I kicked a, a round ball. I sort of kind of watched match of the day and. Uh, and then I went, and my, my uncle, who was into rugby, um, and my father took me to a game in Ravenhill for the Schools Cup final. And the Schools Cup final was between Methody and, and Rainey back in 67. And I, I'd never seen a rugby match in my life before. And I sort of said to them, who are we supporting here? They said, oh, we're going to support Rainey because they're a countryside. And in fairness, they won. And, and I'd, never, you know, I'd never seen a game before. Then I went to Oma Academy and I fell in love with this game, I suppose, because I, I, I wasn't particularly good at, you know, sums or maths or English or any of that sort of thing. And, and I, I, I was big and strong and uh, I fell in love with this game. And, and, and certainly Jackie Reed didn't come to later in my life uh, yeah. because he, he was my, my brother Oliver's time. Right. And, uh, but he had an influence me in terms of athletics. But right. Dick Hines was just, just an old mentor, a, a real dying hard cast of rugby football who, whose knowledge about the game was just fantastic and, and said a lot of things which were very positive towards me. 
Right. But no, I remember Dick because he used to be in the bus going on the school on the, in the rugby trips on a Saturday morning. You get in the bus and he'd be there. Jackie Reed has slightly less better memories because I remember him. Well, yeah, on a Wednesday afternoon in the pouring rain, getting told to do circuits again because he hadn't done them properly the first time. So I mean, not very positive. So. And and Dick smoking a pipe. That's. <laughs> <laughs> no, because well, he he was he was Latin and I didn't do Latin. Sorry, Michael, I didn't do Latin, so I never, never taught me. <laughs> Uh, I remember uh, doing Latin at school, and uh, somebody I had I had a secondhand uh, Latin um, primer book, and uh, written inside the the cover was Latin is a bore as you can plainly see. It killed the ancient Romans, and now it's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 you went from home academy. Did you go? You played with Dungannon after that, then, or was there a gap in between? No, there was a gap in between. The gap in between was uh, I didn't really do that particularly well in my A levels, but I got en- got enough to get into Stranmore's College. Right. Uh, and the reason probably why I went there was I said to myself, well, that probably will I can pursue my 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 you know doing PE. I can pursue rugby football there. And and literally uh, when I went there, I you know King Scholars who you know obviously made up of male te- you know male teachers to be. Like we had three sides in those days, uh, maybe nearly four sides of, of men coming out of college, well, eventually coming out of college with the love of the game. And um, I just, you know, I, I was very lucky because I, because I played, I, I threw the discus for Ulster and an Ulster emblem on me, on the tracksuit. And everybody, whenever I went there and I was wearing the tracksuit, they thought I'd played for Ulster schools, rugby. Right. So I got on the team immediately. So I stayed on the team for three years, maybe. And I thought, Chippers, that, that was very lucky because I got on. And then I played for the juniors, also juniors, in that time. And we, we toured, I toured Canada twice with, well, once with the King Scholars and once with Dungannon. And, um, and that, that was the beginning, really, of getting a bit of confidence through junior rugby into to maybe going onwards, you know? Uh, because you, you didn't you didn't win your first cap till you're 29, which yeah. I guess it was in yeah. those days was a fairly. I mean, even now it's that's quite a long a long way. Was it been? Was that? Well, I, obviously, even well, I, I yeah. Well, I, so I suppose I paid not only the the, the, the prison sentence in, in in Argentina, you know, for 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 helping to take a flag, but I obviously paid my penance in Ireland for taking the flag for that particular time because, like at that period of time in the 80s, the Ulster were, you know, like, uh, one of the most dominant sides, if not in Ireland and Europe, but in the world, because we were playing world, you know, 15s, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from Fiji or from Sydney or from Wellington or, you know, wherever, and, and we, were, we were coming out on top most of the times, you know, so it was, it was a purple patch uh, in, in, Irish, in Irish rugby for, for Ulster. Right. I mean, just one diversion question. I was when I was reading your book and I'm talking about Ulster play in Australia. I mean, that just doesn't happen anymore, does it? I mean, that that just it's... yeah, and it's very sad it doesn't. You know, obviously the professional era and, and you know playing maybe sometimes I think maybe meaningless games. Yeah. Um, throughout the season, season, you know, like very one-sided games. But that's that's the way it is. In those days, you know, like a, a touring side would come in and they would play the four provinces. You know, play a national side, and the, like the fervor was fantastic, and mm. it also made the, certainly myself. You know, as a, a youngster, it, 
you know, the old blacks are in town, Australia are in town, South Africa are in town, or yeah. Italy are in town. It, 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 it gave a new dimension. Yeah. And, it, and it probably gave you, like, I was fortunate enough in my first year that the old blacks came to town, you know, in 78. Now, like, we were, we were way off the way of it, but it was great to rub shoulders with people like, right. you know, the, the, the top best players in the world. I guess it's a bit like when the Lions tour abroad, they'll play a midweek game against a province, you know, but that's just, again, I guess the, the pressure of the professional game, you know, when Australia and the All Blacks and South Africa come to town, they just they just don't want to do that, do they? They just want to play the weekend games and that, that, that's how Yeah, it and like it's, it's unfortunate even for the All Blacks because a lot of their midweek, you know, players or, or their, their coming up and players maybe don't get a great opportunity. Mm. Um, yeah. Having said that, most of the All Blacks could play for the All Blacks, you know, who tour, but uh, it, 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 it certainly, it certainly, you know, I, I don't think it spreads the game as, as well as it could do, you know, no. I think it can do, but no. like, yeah. like when the All Blacks came to Ireland this year and they, they played three months on the trot, like of 12 or 14 games, like, like that's incredible. Ah, it's hard life. So, so on to one very big part of the book. I'd like to know how many beers did you have before you stole the flag in Argentina? <laughs> well, let me tell it. Let me just put it this way. I don't know if you ever go out and you've eaten maybe three steaks. It is a very difficult thing to get. You know, even a sort of a, a modicum of sort of buzz going in your head with beers, no matter how many you have. So that's literally what we did because. Everywhere we went, even in jail, it was steaks, meat. You know, there's a staple diet uh, because there was so much just meat there in, in Argentina. We it wasn't it wasn't even a case of that. It was just me and a fellow were walking down the street and we saw this flag and I helped him. He helped me to get it down and and uh, and, and we walked casually back to the, the hotel. Um, and it just, it's funny that uh, you know that. Argentina and Buenos Aires in particular at that stage was probably the safest city in the world because if you stepped off the footpath, you were probably whizzed into jail. So when there were the, the, the six guys came through with machine guns, etc., I knew there was definitely something amiss. I mean, how, how did they know you'd taken it? I assume someone saw you and pointed at this yeah, big well, little Irish guy. And... Supposedly the guy who, who sort of saw, he thought he saw us, but then again, they would have known we were in town and like it, it, it was a fair bit of, you know, so obviously uh, people watching out for you. And there wasn't anybody on the streets. It wasn't a question of people were cramming the streets. It was just a quiet street because people were, weren't were scared to go out. And we didn't realise, I didn't realise this about Argentina or Buenos Aires at the time, we were completely and utterly naive and innocent about, you know, fascism or, you know, the junta or anything like that, or people disappearing over the Atlantic. So, um, obviously, the, the, the intel of some sort and then bang and down to the station. and Because this this was pre-Falkland Island, so this was just ramping up to that with, like I said, the military junta and control and Argentina having curfews and all the rest of it and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, and and there's no doubt that happened a year later. I I I I beggared belief what would might have happened because it was wrapping up, and even then there was such a hatred for uh, the British or English in particular. Um, and like, I mean, I don't think they could they realize that somebody from Northern Ireland could have a British passport, but it's maybe kind of dawned on them eventually. 
that like he's not even from England, he's from another part of the world. Yeah, so so that's in the book. So so how long did they realize take to realize that? Because obviously you say the British get a British passport, which I guess equates to their mind England, and then they suddenly realize he's from Northern Ireland, which is well in, in Argentina uh, or like most Latin countries you are guilty until proved innocent. You're not innocent until proved guilty. So that process mm. is a fairly lengthy process, no matter what happens, wherever you go. Suppose you, you, some people have found it in, in Spain, you know, Chambers is manana, manana. Well, it was manana, manana until they realized. And then when they did realize, they didn't want to come out and say, oh, we've made a terrible mistake here. So that I had to go through the process. And the process was courts. I had to get a lawyer. He was threatened nearly every week but for his life because he was sort of uh, representing a, an infidel from, you know, from UK. So uh, that took a process. And then, you know, there was, you know, as I say, concern that they might have made an example. Yes. So, and if I had an Irish passport, I'd been on the flight home the next day. Right. And how long were you in prison for? Was it a month or not, I think, or was it longer? And then, Another nearly three three months uh, uh, in arrest. Did you get much um, support from the IRFU at that stage uh, as a touring player, Willie, or were you left to your own devices? Um, there was a bit. No, the, 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 certainly my rugby club, Dungannon, did a, a massive amount and, and contacted a lot of people, you know, like Harry Cavan and, and uh, people in the embassy and the Irish embassy, etc. But you see, I, because I was UK, because I was a British citizen, you know, it was, it was difficult for uh, the Irish embassy to do very much. Now, they were very good and they met, you know, the Irish you know, ambassador and that sort of thing, and they were very supportive and helpful. Um, uh, the, the IRFU, in, in sort of, in the background, were, were making negotiations, I think, but uh, it probably was a more of an embarrassment to them than, than, you know, maybe help. But there's a lot of people in the North and, and Ireland all through really helped me to certainly um, sort of pay the bill because it was overall it was twenty thousand in those days that was a lot of money and yeah. and my my mum and dad came up with ten and you know Ireland as a whole and Dungannon came up with ten or uh, like came up with ten so I had ten thousand which in those days was a lot a lot of money that's a lot yeah. of money. I mean, when you finally got out, did you did you keep the flag? No, no, no. This is you see the irony. The flag was taken uh, from me that night, and the next morning it was anointed with holy water and put back up again. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fact. The road was stopped. There was a there was a celebration and ceremony, and the flag was raised again with. The holy flag of Argentina, my goodness, oh my god! So, but uh, that's that amazing story. And again, there's a couple of chapters in the book that I highly recommend. About it. So, and like, Terry, you you have some insight with regard to um, uh, getting into spots of bother. Well, yeah, so it's not really equivalent, but we, I work in the oil and gas business, and we were in Bergen once in Norway, which is a lovely, beautiful city by the sea. And there was some sort of Irish Celtic festival on. I can't remember what it was for. And there was flagpoles around the, the harbour, and there was a, it was a trickler on each one, and uh, we stole the trickler. <laughs> we took it, it down, but it was quite easy to do, and we got caught within minutes, literally within five minutes. The cops were there. We got fined. I'm trying to think what it was. And it was about thirty quid, 
and um, which we had to pay the next day at the police station, uh, and then we just gave it back. There was no no trouble, and we weren't even that drunk. I don't think we were just kind of like this be quite nice. Only water on to raise it again. There was no, there was only, we were kind of walking along with this trickler sort of thing. So that, wrapped that was, around your shoulders. <laughs> uh, can I just say for a bit of balance uh, that uh, I have never been um, accused of stealing a flag or indeed stolen a flag, but I have been uh, on Argentine soil, uh, Willie in uh, the case of uh, the Argentine embassy in Stockholm, where they were very nice to me and plied me with um, beef empanadas and red wine. <laughs> Whenever I was out on the, on, in the street, the, the ordinary Argentine and, and the rugby guys were absolutely magnificent. And like, I'm still sort of friends from that time now. Um, it just, but they were in such fear. It was just like, everybody was in fear. Um, and I didn't realize how much fear they were in. You know, when I, I even saw the, the, the old woman walking around the Pink Palace, you know, square and, you know, wondering what this was all about. And then got, you know, I got to learn the history of what was happening. And it was absolutely horrific. I mean, certainly something that all, it's a good, I mean, it's unbelievable that story, actually. So uh, moving on, you described rugby um, through the Troubles as kind of a beacon of light. And at the time, there obviously was a lot of Ulstermen in, in, in the team, Matthews, Carr, Keith Cross and, you know, Philip Rainey, etc. And living in Scotland, you know, I, I find it, I struggle to explain to people here that, that you'd find orange men from Northern Ireland wearing the green shirt at Lansdowne Road or Aviva and the rugby and, that's a strange mix. It's hard to explain how that happens, but you know, it would be marching on the 12th of July, but it'd still be in Dublin with the green shirt on to watch the rugby. Just... Yeah, and like I was at that time, I was, you know, I was piping in, in Trough in LOL 1277 and <laughs> and uh, in Six Mile Cross, or that's where we come from. And I was then going down and representing Ireland. But I think the biggest thing for any, for any, rugby player in Ireland, no matter where you're from, you you obviously now is to play for your province, but it was ultimately played for your country. And 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 you were brought up on that Willie John McBride, the Jack Kyles, you know, um the Mike Gibsons, you saw these guys playing for the Lions, you saw them representing Ireland, you saw the crowds, and you saw them standing with reverence and respect for the national anthem. Mm. And you knew if you if you heard that song if you were, you know, lucky and honoured enough to hear that song on that patch of grass, that field, you, you'd represented your country. And that was the ultimate, no matter where you came from. Now, some guys, obviously, like both sides, you know, ultimately, whatever. But there was never one time in all the time that I played for Ireland, somebody said, you're whatever from the whatever. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that was the beauty of rugby. And, and uh, fantastic. And the sacrifices in those days that both sides of the border made um, to come up and play, like particularly in Gallen, which was a fairly tough part of the world, uh, you know, with, with, with a lot of troubles and blown to bits, Dungannon was, you know, completely. Yeah, right. um, so for them to come up to Clontarfs or the Black Rocks or the UCDs or to come up and for us then to travel down was a big sacrifice uh, and and a lot of people respected that and rugby elevated itself above the troubles and and, and I, I'm I'm very grateful for that you know mm-hmm. in, in lots of ways and I and I think 
friendships were even forged stronger because of that in rugby football. That's great. And Willie, to be fair to say, I mean, we're all from uh, kind of near enough the border. I'm, I'm from uh, <coughs> Monaghan on the southern side. But um, it'd be fair to say that, um, you know, people who maybe played for um, Black Rock or St. Mary's or <coughs> clubs like that in um, Dublin, they really wouldn't have known what was going on in, in Northern Ireland, particularly. <coughs> clearly, no. they? Yeah, and that, that actually, uh, Michael, was this, <coughs> the, the uh, sort of on, on the, the realisation when Brendan did the book when he started to talk about what actually happened during the Troubles and yeah. what the Troubles meant here. And, you know, the the, the, the absolute horror of the Troubles, both sides. Um, he, 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 didn't have, he didn't have an idea until he started to go in depth with myself. And, you know, people who worked on my farm were shot or my friends were blown up or whatever. But... He just didn't. He didn't. He just didn't understand, and a lot of people didn't understand. And a lot of people, when they read the book, you know, were quite cheapers taken by the fact that we were we were uh, living with this. And and I remember, I remember, I didn't, I didn't put this in the book. I remember one time, I think it was Glasgow, didn't come across, or Edinburgh didn't come across to play us, and we were also were on a run, and uh, and they said, oh, we couldn't come across for the troubles, and, and I was absolutely apoplectic you know we're living with this and you can't come in and play us in a secure environment so we are living with this in the every day but you feel that you you might be under pressure like the people who are yeah. under pressure with us and like there was size coming from new zealand australia fiji you know <laughs> england and they were coming to play us and I, I was just amazed that the, 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 the side from Scotland couldn't come over and play us. I think it was maybe Glasgow, I think. Yeah, uh, and uh, I mean, the, the a lot of the clubs would have taken uh, their cues from probably what happened, uh, I think it was 1972, when all bar England refused to come over to play in the Five Nations that year, Willie. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, and, and I must say, I know there's the Isle enemy and the Isle enemy for Scotland and everything, but, uh, you know, in fairness... England would always hold that reverence to me because they did turn up and they did play and 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 the, and the crowds in rugby football, you know, stood to a man to applaud them and I remember it so well and that old joke, you know, we mightn't be very good but at least we turn up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, and that's the beauty of rugby. You know, that was the beauty of rugby at that time for me. And, and, it, and, and I forged so many great friendships at that stage. Um, you know, like the Black Rocks and St. Mary's, we played a lot of top internationals. And those days, the lovely thing was you were playing against Paul Dean. You were playing against Willie Duggan. You were playing against, you know, the, 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 the international players. McKinney was playing for us. Davis was playing for us. And those were, you know, and you were playing against, you know, internationals. And as I said, those internationals, you know, in the club rugby those days, they, they, they taught the young people like myself coming through what rugby was, what rugby had to be like on the pitch and very much what rugby had to be off the pitch. You know, I, I, I remember from that, uh, 
that era, well, probably a couple of years beforehand, my dad took me to um, a uh, tour, well, it wasn't tour match as such, but it was uh, Leinster against the Wolfhounds in Drogheda. And I would have been about 12 at the time. And uh, the match, you know, Drogheda didn't have like a bona fide uh, ground, as you would know, it, with stands and terraces and things like that. It was just a, a pitch in the field. And uh, Leinster were getting beaten at halftime. And uh, the Leinster team had their um, uh, talk behind the goalposts where, where, where we were stood. And uh, Fergus Slattery was uh, the captain of, of Leinster at that stage. And what he didn't do in terms of effing and blinding at the players, I was absolutely stunned. <laughs> yeah. And Willie Duggan might have been standing there having a cigarette at that stage. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but I mean, today it's unfortunate. Like I'm, my first game ever for uh, for Dungan was against Old Crescent and Limerick, and I, I you know, and it's, uh, people say to me and they look at me and wonder because f for me from 1976, <clears throat> I I had we had Dungan I would have played in Limerick nearly every year, and our reputation Limerick was just like royalty. It was just fantastic because we always traveled, we always stayed out, we always sang, we always had a bit of crack, and we never got into any bother. <clears throat> and 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 I, I was at a, I was at the rainy at the rainy club there uh, this year. I was just invited as a guest, and they were playing Old Crescent. Now there was I think four Old Crescent Alligators there. The team came in. They had a bite of soup or a, you know a bit of. Pie, got on the bus and left, and that was it. There was no mingling, there was no crack, there was no togetherness. And I'm saying, we well, where has rugby gone to? Because we would have stayed two nights in Limerick. We were right with, we were right with the Crescent guys the night before, and we were right with the Crescent guys the next night, and they would have taken us to their bar because every club in Limerick has got a bar in town. We would have went there. We would have sang songs. We would have, you know had the crack and that that has just gone it's so unfortunate it's just it's not rugby football to me i i, I would agree with you um willie um you had some success at um international level i mean the ireland team that you you played with in the mid 80s obviously they won the triple crown and five nations in 1985 um and you you Basically, your career was under two very different coaches, wasn't it? I mean, you had uh, Mick Doyle, who you had some success with, but who you described as a narcissist. Uh, and then you had um, Jimmy Davidson. So tell us about any particular memories you have of working with those two guys. Well, first of all, you know, Doyle brought a breath of fresh air and, and, and he came from, <clears throat> a, a, you know, on the back of the Lancer side, who were the dominant side just in the, the late seventies to early eighties, you know, and, but he, he rode it on the back of the, the Slattery's Duggins, Ollie Campbell's and the Tony Wards and, you know, um, Paul Norton, McNaughton's and, and, you know, Phil Ors and those guys. And they had a fantastic side. And then they, they sort of left the scenario and Doyle then came in and saw that Ulster playing a brand of rugby and with the Ulster men and with the Lancer guys that he had, he, he could see, and was particularly the likes of Nigel Carr and Philip Matthews in the back row and the likes of Spillane 
on a mobile team he could play. And and fairness, his his mantra was give it a lash. So he gave it a lash for the first year and we did very well. And we're very lucky because in Scotland, remember our first match, it could have went anyway. And we, we just got to bounce the ball as it were and we got that great score. I think Keith Crossan scored maybe, <coughs> or Trevor. And um, and then, you know, he didn't change. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't have a plan B. So we were picked off the next year and and then eventually, you know, he left and 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 in the ways he, you know, he he was a brighter guy than he than he, he came across, but he 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 didn't change his philosophy. Not that he needed change, he just needed to twerk, tweak it a wee bit, you know, to just make them think the opposition. And then Jimmy Davison came in in a time when there was also were doing magnificently well, and he was my mentor, and he was one of the greatest forward-thinking guys at that time, if not now, in terms of rugby football. Uh, he was passionate about the game. But however, <clears throat> like the, the majority the majority of the Ulster guys were flying fit. They trained during the summer to be fit for Ulster and for Ireland. Whereas a lot of the guys in the South only trained to play for Ireland, which came, you know, too late. So you had a bunch of guys who were flying fit. And as they say in rugby or any sport, you played your lowest common denominator. Yeah. So you had guys who at that stage and you know, for a, a good time after that, the last 10 minutes or last 15 minutes of any Irish game, they were, they were beaten because they weren't fit enough collectively. So he had a dilemma. Um, now, he was he's so far ahead of thinking, you know, in terms of, what he what he wanted to see in terms of fitness for the whole sort of Irish situation, but because he, he didn't win and because he didn't get an extension, and because there was politics involved, uh, he, he was removed and and, and and it actually broke him because he knew that he had something that he could change if he was allowed to have changed, if he was allowed to make it a sort of a, a national sort of identity of getting fitter and you know you know being tested and all of this stuff but you know people didn't want that <clears throat> particularly some of the players didn't want that and they yeah. didn't didn't see the reality of jimmy davison until he was long gone because then they realized cheapers this guy for what has come after him is just was was in a different different league altogether yeah, and he was maybe a bit more insightful, uh, psychologically speaking, as well, wasn't he? I mean, uh, I, th I think you've said that uh, he was the inspiration behind uh, your uh, Hakka confrontation with uh, New Zealand in 1989. Yeah, he, and the thing of Jimmy Davison, when he, today they have one to ones face to face. Jimmy Davison would have written you three, would written you, would have written you a three page letter. To outline your game, you know, and, and he did that for everybody, whether you were Irish or Ulster, and um, and then he he his inspiration for that was, and like everybody was told, so even though those people say no, I wasn't told about this, and they were all told, yes, we are all linking the arms because he his view was, well, you know, and it happened even at Lansdowne Road on what or Aviva there when I was down watching the All Blacks when Ireland beat them this year. Or last, uh, just before the uh, in November there, and I said, "Look, and the night before I was down, I said, well, what do you see what happens tomorrow?' And they do the hack, and what'll happen? You'll all applaud, <laughs> even, though they were, even though they were singing, you know, the 
the fields of Athen, right? There was still a big crowd applauding the Haka. And I said, well, they're, they're, they're applauding the opposition, like they would have done back in 89. But this time they didn't. They applauded our wee dance. <laughs> I, so, I yeah. think you were like the Roy Keane of rugby. Uh, I, I think he would have done the same thing. So, but, uh, No, he, he was inspirational in that. And, and Ferris, he... He, uh, he, he said, look, everybody link arms, come forward all together and get in the face of these all blacks and see where they come from. Now, you, some you, you, you were definitely uh, leading there. It looked like uh, I, I was uh, watching on YouTube the other day, Willie, and it looked like uh, David Irwin and Philip Matthews were, were basically trying to anchor you to stop you from getting stuck into them. David was definitely pulling, Philip must be pulling back. But uh, there was a few guys who were in, in the wings who were saying, wow, I didn't expect this to happen. <laughs> but anyway, it had, it had a great effect. I've never had a not feel like it normally. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So of, of all the countries you've played against, Willie, who was your kind of favourite or maybe most difficult international opponent? And in, in your book, you mentioned one bit, by the way, I don't understand this, but it was Jeff Whitefoot. You buck-rooted him. What, what does that mean? Well, I... I well, he went down, and I sort of, you know, you know, just had a little touch with him, you know, to not make sure he'd done it again, so he didn't. And, right. And and, uh, <laughs> and and my tail head at the time, Des Fitzgerald, could not believe that he had an easy ride from then on. He drilled him into the ground every time there was a scrum because he never went down again. <laughs> <laughs> but who, who would have been your toughest opponent? You know, you're thinking maybe the lineouts or. Bob Noster was brilliant at that stage, you know, as a, as a, as a second row and playing against him. He was such a great athlete. Um, I, I just, I, 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 one of my, well, two of my favourite player, players played for, for France, Philippe Salah was, like, I remember Philip Matthews running down a pitch one day in Paris, I think it was, or somewhere, and he, he literally, Philip Matthews just tackled him as he tackled him. He ripped the ball straight out of his arms and ran on. And I'm saying, like, this is a centre. This guy's unbelievable. But the guy I got to know and, and, and who was probably my favourite player at that time was Serge Blanco. He was just phenomenal. And his skill level, his pace, his evasion, and, and the way France played at that particular time, you know, the Villepreux way was just amazing. Yeah, very impressive stuff, like so. And it was just a joy to watch. And, and, and hopefully, you know, I think it'll be a joy to watch this year again. Hopefully. Yeah. And um, you're kind of in a fairly unique position, Willie, of having, you know, played at international level as an amateur. And then uh, you, you coached really at the advent of professionalism as well. And you, you see some countries have maybe responded a wee bit better than others to that transformation or transition. I mean, New Ireland was a bit lucky maybe to have the provincial structure there already, but for Scotland, who you you also did some coaching with in Wales, it's kind of um, marginalised uh, some people <coughs> would have given yeah. a lot during the amateur era, and um, we, we instead we've got bureaucrats in there. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, if, I think if rugby had to do it again, I don't know if they would could would have gone down the, the club line, uh, even in Ireland, because at one stage, like and we and we were very lucky because Dungannon, you know, won an All Ireland because of it. Uh, you know, where players were you know, paid basically at club level, but it was it was ridiculous, and it's it's actually lingered on. 
and it's actually nearly broken the wheel of rugby at club level here in, in Ireland. I think of it, and, and, and I see, you know, similarities between Gaelic football and rugby, whereas the, the counties are looked after, but they're not paid. They're very well looked after because of the, the equipment is just it's phenomenal in Ireland. <clears throat> now, if they had to do it again, I think, you know, maybe at international level or provincial level now it's maybe to have a structure of, of professionalism. But below that, it's it's just nonsense because it's just not sustainable. Um, like like soccer is in, in Ireland because a lot of people get like a five or a ten or a twenty pound to play in a like a ridiculous game. So and I, and I think it's lost it kind of it lost soul a little bit at that particular time. Um, we were very mm-hmm. yes, we were very fortunate in Ireland to have four provinces to to to, to hang our to hang our structure on. Uh, uh, however, I think Scotland and Wales really struggled because Wales, like they have some unbelievably good sides like Swansea and Pontypridd yeah. and Pontypridd and, 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 and I remember having unbelievable games against the sides of Scotland where they had literally, like Ulster, full international team. Yeah. John Jeffries yeah. and John Beatties and it was just, or, you know, there was just fantastic games. Yeah. It was interesting, I, I met a guy a few years ago I was at Glasgow Warriors against Leinster, and for some reason I was in hospitality, which was, was very nice. And the Pro 12 at the time, the, I was the chairman of the MD was there, and they were looking for to expand the Pro 12 into, well, I guess it became the Pro 14, whatever they have now. And they were looking for another team in Scotland. And uh, I was chatting to the guy, and I said, you know, so they've obviously got Glasgow Warriors in Edinburgh, clearly, or the Borders. And he said they were trying to get some interest further north, because in Scotland, I mean, there's rugby clubs in Aberdeen, there's rugby clubs in Everness, but they just didn't think there was the interest in rugby outside of the borders in the central belt, which I thought was very sad, actually. So um, they, they gave up looking at for Aberdeen or Inverness or even Perth, you know. So Yeah, and, and look, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I mean, I admire Scottish rugby and, and, and unfortunately, you know, it, it, it has, you know, um, you know, like that three sides. And when I was there, I was down at, you know, South Scotland on the borders, it was called. Mm-hmm. And there was a, you know, it was a hotbed of Scottish rugby. It was just phenomenal. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, and and so many clubs uh, in that area, and uh, and it's just sad to see that you know, that influence in Scottish rugby has gone, you know, in a way. Um, and you know their structure, you know, as well. Probably uh, the Irish structure is maybe more con- conducive to maybe. Uh, you know, making players play for the province, and there was much more of a sort of a, a unique sort of stance for you know the different tribes that were in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. do you think um, to a certain extent that's getting undermined a wee bit by recruitment policy, though, Willie? You I mean you've got this you know international uh, rugby ruling that uh, you know you you can basically v- uh, vouch to play for another country after residing in it for for three years. Is, is that going to pull the legs from under, you know, people getting involved because they, they just look at everybody getting exported from the Southern Hemisphere up here? I, I Look, I, I suppose I'm, I'm one of the old, always, I just feel if you're Irish, you play for Ireland. If you're somebody else, you play for whoever it is. And I know that there's a lot of guys have, have uh, you know, got caps, you know, in Ireland from having been born in other countries and like I played with a guy, Brian Smith, 
uh, and he was, you know, obviously he, well, he had his grandmother, he, he had a grandmother, or supposedly a grandmother who was Irish. Now, fine, but for somebody to change allegiance because they're there for three years or five years or whatever it is, to me, we, we should be thinking about bringing through our, you know, our, our high performance kids uh, through to our countries and that's the way it should be. Yeah, and you look at like CJ Stander for Munster, or you've got you know, Josh Fader Clear. And I know a few years ago I got an absolute slag at Murrayfield for where they were leading out the Scottish squad. I was sitting there with my drink, obviously feeling quite brave about Australian, New Zealand, New Zealand, Australian, South African, and the guy behind me almost that was the end of a pint almost, you know. But I, I, I yeah, and I, I, I look and I, I like the, the three players who played outstandingly well for Ireland against the All Blacks were three New Zealanders. <laughs> Well, you got James Lowe as well, I guess. Yeah, so and and you've got the scrum half. So yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, look, I, I I don't want to be too controversial, but I I look, I suppose in my day, when I played for Ulster, we had fifteen Ulster men playing mm-hmm. for Ulster, and we were one of the top sides in the world. There was a tremendous number of players coming through. There was a great bit of coaching. There was great coaches. There was a great, there was a good structure. Now we don't have that. You know, we're we're, we're starting to get back a back line that was Ulster, yeah. but we've still got so many guys from all parts of the world. And I would just like to see the same for Ulster. I'd like to see the same for Ireland. And yeah. you know, that's to me, that's the way it should be. And if you don't, if you don't win, well, you know, you know, get, get more guys in to, to to win. You know, because. Players take time. There's always cycles in, in international rugby. Yeah. It is good to see, though, talking about Ulster, that guy Doak at number nine. I and mean, he's been fantastic this yeah, season. He's, he's going to be a, a you know a talented great guy, and he's you know he's, he's and I, I I coached him as well, and and Michael Lowry, outstanding person and player, you know, yes. and you know Hume and you know Moore and Robert Bollockin, who will definitely feature for Ireland this year. Uh, absolutely, So it's it's lovely to see. You know, Ulster Irish players. You know who are mm. who are, you know going to maybe be you know, selected this year, which is fantastic. Yeah. Well, what about the, the modern game, the way it's played? I mean, <clears throat> the one thing that frustrates me, especially coming towards the end of a game, is the scrummaging. You know, can just go on for so long. You know, and and the, the lineouts. I guess that's a safety thing with the lifting and the lineouts. But it's kind of particularly annoys you in the kind of modern game, or. Well, the line is probably makes it more sort of cleaner. It used to be just yeah. elbows and fists and punches and, you know, the ball would eventually <laughs> drop out of these two lines of players. However, um, I, 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 I do, I have been always an advocate of, you know, keeping the ball alive, keeping the ball up, offloading, fast rocking, a lot sort of that. That's always been my sort of mantra. And I suppose that was handed down to me from Jimmy Davis, who, would have said, look, we start the game on the wing and we play from there and whatever, you know, uh, and kept the ball alive and kept it moving. Now, unfortunately, the, the game went through a period of time and certainly Ireland where, like, you could have had 36, maybe 40 rucks and we they hadn't maybe gone two yards and you could have went and put the kettle on, had a cup of tea, had your breakfast and come back again and said, papers were still at the, you know, 34th ruck here. And it was the most boring game I ever, ever saw in my life. I think the, the 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 sort of that has been broken because the All Blacks play on a fast ball situation. The French are definitely playing on the speed of the ball and you know and looking for space and looking up. 
and being coached rather than being organized into playing. And that, I think Gregor Townsend has that sort of uh, yep. as well, which I'm, I was always delighted to see. And, and, and long may it be because, for, and I suppose because I'm a still a teacher coach, I just want to see kids looking at a game and saying, that's the way I want to play rugby football. Yeah. I am being coached to play rugby football. Not, you know, because I remember asking, you know, uh, Rory Brecht one time, you know, how 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 you getting on with Joe Smith? Now, Joe Smith did a magnificent job in terms of winning Grand Slams and at the time being absolutely ruthless in terms of what he did. He said, well, look, I have to know what I'm doing in the sixth ruck. And I'm saying, you must be joking me. You have to know what you're doing in the sixth ruck. So that meant that he, he just rocked. He didn't yeah. think about maybe tipping the ball onto somebody in space or passing out the back or, you know, sidestepping. And I, I just thought we lost the run of ourselves. We became, we, a lot of coaches became organizers rather than coaching. Yeah. Just organize the team into one three three one or 2 2 2 2 or yeah. 3 3 2 or some other formation like you have in football. <laughs> I mean, see, I mean, if, you, if you compare the sorry, Terry, okay. there. Uh, if you compare, um, you, you know, the victories for um, Ireland against the All Blacks under Joe Schmidt compared to Andy Farrell's one last autumn, the um, the, um, the All Blacks were were uh, basically tired, I think, uh, for some of those games, uh, and when it was against Schmidt. Uh, they could deal with that kind of rocking up to a point, but it's when the ball was uh, moved, you know, there was basically some offloading, but we saw more offloading with Farrell's team. And that's what caused the problems and opened up the space, isn't it? Yeah. And 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 you, you have to probably put Farrell's team in, in, in the various commas because 13 of them are playing for Leo Cullen's team, <laughs> which is Leinster, and 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 that has been the bedrock of how they're starting to play. Because I was saying to myself, as a coach, you cannot you cannot get a group of players to play like that. Uh, you know, you can you, you can start playing against like that for Japan, and they did. And I said, Chippers, this is new. Will they be able to sustain it against pressure, particularly the All Blacks? And the reason why they're able to do it is because they've been doing it all season with Leinster. So they just took Leinster's game plan and they've now used it for Ireland. And and because there's 13, in fact, it could be 14 players for Leinster, yeah. either born and bred in Leinster or you know playing for Leinster at this moment time, playing this Saturday. So uh, it, so that's why the the, the 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 mantra has changed, and there's a fast ball, and the and and the players will will have to play that way. And hopefully, you know, hopefully that is that's the way the game should go forward because it is such an enjoyable spectacle, and, and young fellas want to see that and play that. Yeah, I think the television audiences want to see it as well. You know, as the monthly game. Yeah, the game. I just, I, I just hope the game. You know, the boring game is. It's it, it, hopefully it's, it's a game, a thing of the past, and I think, I think sides are starting to realise that. You know the offloading and the fast rock and the, you know looking at space and attacking space whether it's in front or mm. at the sides. You know that to me that's what rugby football should be like. And I suppose having watched 
France throughout my time of playing and been sort of influenced by Jimmy Davis in terms of how his philosophy was and, you know, looking at the game, particularly like the way Toulouse plays, that's the way I think the game should be coached and played. So looking forward, obviously, the Six Nations kicks off on Saturday at quarter past two. I'll be standing outside Murrayfield in the cold, watching it on a screen. And then hopefully, so what are your predictions, Willie, for that? What do you th- I mean, I think it's going to be very open. Yeah, I think it will be open. And I think, uh, you know, Ireland at home will be very strong. There's no doubt about that. They're, you know, I, you know I, whether Wales can turn up and, you know, turn that charm on again from the did last year as, a, as you know, <clears throat> as, a, as a, a group of players playing for each other, you know, but I don't know if they've got the, the, the talisman captain to be able to bring that together. I just think Ireland are just too strong at, at home, particularly. And uh, I think they'll be tested in Turkenham. And I think they'll be very much tested in France. Mm. Um, I think Scotland, you know, are on the right trajectory. England, you wouldn't know what, you know, is going to happen there at all because there are so many players to play pick from. But they're still, you know, they're still finding it difficult to pick 15 elite Rugby players, you know, who are you know above the rest. Yeah. Well, I I've forgotten that last year's Six Nations, England were fifth. I've forgotten that they, they were so bad. So no, fingers I mean, crossed. If we get to fourth, if we did well this year, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've got uh, they've got a lot of injury problems as well, uh, don't they, Willie? And there's no kind of coherent game plan. No, uh, that they can employ when that happens. So, do you think they're there for the taking against Scotland? I think so. I think Scotland home would be. We will be could be favourites in that game, and uh, and if Scotland, you know, play with the game that they, they can do, I think they've a great chance. I think um, I think France, I, I, I just I think France are at the, this moment in time are just a step ahead of everybody. Um, now, you know, Ireland going to France will be a really interesting game and it'll set a marker out to see where Ireland not with their new game plan because you have to remember that France have been playing this type of game for the last three years since their, their under-20s won the World Cup because it's the basis of that team that's come through and uh, you know in fairness to uh, their coach and their you know the, their players who are, who are sort of uh, you know playing with the Toulouse philosophy that that is, is a breath of fresh air. And they can mix it up by having absolutely ruthless forwards up front. If, if they keep the discipline, they, they can do very well. And they're obviously building up to next year, France, without a shadow of a doubt. But it, it'll be a great marker for Ireland, uh, from, from my point of view, going to Twickenham and going particularly to France. I, mean, I don't see too many changes in the Ireland team squad that played in the, obviously the all have internationals. I mean, I'd love to see Lowry and Ballagreen get a game. But not not at the first start, I don't think so. No, I think they'll probably get games against Italy or somebody got there. Mm. Uh, I don't think even you know if, if Scotland if, if Scotland uh, beat England this weekend, then you know they they're set a marker down. And Ireland have to be aware of that because you know Scotland are on a, a trajectory as well now. So, um, so would you predict? You think France would be the favourites then for the? From my point of view, France would be the favourites, particularly with with having Ireland in Paris. I think they're the top sides, I think, at the moment. I think, I think Scotland could beat France at Murrayfield maybe at the end of February. I'm looking forward to well, that. They've, well. always had, they've always had a, they've always had a, you know, a, a, a charm over France. Yep. Um, 
and it it you know it, it's 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 February. If it's March, you might have difficulty because the grounds are drier then, you know. But you always you never want to be going to Paris in the springtime. <laughs> and uh, Italy certainly won't be enjoying that on, on Sunday, will he? They're really uncompetitive at the moment. Do you think there's anything that you know other countries can help them with? I mean, that the, their funding seems to have uh, fallen through the floor compared to other countries. Um. Well, I have a I have a a very close interest in Italy because my, my best friend Stephen Abud has been coaching there and being part of that program for the last few years. And it was interesting. I I, I, I saw a, 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 a kind of a video situation that they had about Italy, Italian rugby yesterday, and their underage rugby is by far a mile ahead of nearly everybody. They're beating oh. everybody. Scotland, Ireland, France, England, over the last two, three years because of their system and their players coming through. Unfortunately, they just don't have the, 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 the competition there, but their structure certainly from, from, from up to now has been outstanding, underage, under 20s. And, and they'll do brilliantly again this year. I mean, they can do brilliantly again in the, in the, the Six Nations. It's just unfortunately that these kids, it's going to take a while for them to come through. And then when they're playing for the likes of Treviso or Zebra, they, they just don't have, you know, the, the, the players, you know, to, to boist them up. But there is certainly a lot of young talent coming through in Italy. And I, and I, and I kind of feel for them a wee bit because of their, they're just, they're, they're not, they're not at the sort of levels that we have in terms of the, the British Isles. Right. Are you are you going to go over, what's the Ireland weekend? I'm going to go down with my son Thomas. Uh, he had never been, so we're going down and going to just go down for the day and up again. So yeah, that I'm looking forward to it. You know, and it's, it's also a good day out. Who, who kind of the modern forwards would be your kind of player of choice? The current, you know, if you take the Six Nations, it stands at the minute. I mean. Well, I think you know the likes. Doris is playing very well. I, I like Henderson. I think he's a, a, you know certainly from an ultra point of view. You know, if he's fit, he, he's uh, certainly a very talented guy. Um, I, I must say, I, I thought Laws it would be a massive loss to England. Mm-hmm. He's playing outstandingly well. Um, and and uh, you know some of the, the French back rowers are like outstanding as well. I always like. Um, the wee open side for Scotland. Um, oh, let's uh, see. Famous. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's outstanding. I mean, yeah. he's, you know, he, he punches so far above his weight. He's fantastic. He um he came, he, he came on as a substitute in one of the autumn games last year and the cheer he got when he came on was unbelievable. Yeah. So, I, like, I mean, you have got, you know, a winner or a loser playing a 10 for Scotland. I mean, he, 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 he can <laughs> throw a rabbit out of a hat or he can actually choke a rabbit. You know, but he, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's certainly, he's certainly a maverick in terms of the way he, he, he is frustrating because I mean, again, you watch him and you know, like he does so many good things, and then he'll just do something bizarre and kick, you know, whatever. But. Yeah, and I, and I've coached players like out there, and you, and you have to just say, grit your teeth and say, I, I'm expecting this, I'm expecting this. But uh, yeah, look, I mean, I, I just obviously love that, I love the, the. the French in terms of the way they play, 
I, it'll be interesting to see how England show up this year. Uh, um, I think Ireland have a, have a great chance uh, of certainly becoming being first or second. Um, I, I just I just hope I hope the game I hope the games are not boring. I just hope the games are uh, you know a sort of a it's sort of a, a a presentation to young people to play the game because we need that. We need that after a sort of a kind of five or six years of mm. dull, and then particularly after the, the British and Irish Lions giving us oh. a cool and greyer. That was so, dreadful. You know. So um, we, we, we and the, the, the and the autumn internationals have been very interesting and sort of invigorating for a lot of countries. So yeah. Yeah, and it's it's always a renewal, isn't it? The Six Nations. It's great until you lose your first game, particularly oh. this weekend. So uh, there, yeah, there's there's always winners and losers. But uh, I, don't, I don't want to get into this game. Think it's a, you know it's a done deal because you know Wales can always sort of generate that sort of a howl as a collective um, in that sort of synergy. However, <clears throat> their club rugby is, is in a shambolic state. <clears throat> it's just so, one, one thing before we let you go, Willie, we, we couldn't let you go without mentioning the most famous Anderson, obviously, this is your AW. <laughs> so, he's, well, I don't say his claim to fame, he's done loads of things, I'm sure, but the, obviously the Harry Styles thing, I mean, that must be quite a nice distraction from rugby. Yeah, and look, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's somebody, well, Helen and I are just planning to go to his women's show now in Paris for a little baby, <laughs> um, in a month's time, and... Uh, you know, it's it's fantastic because whenever we, you know they were kids were growing up, you know, and and you know Jonathan would be asked, uh, "Oh, you you you're Willie Anderson's son, aren't you?" Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. And now when I go to these shows, uh, you're Jonathan Anderson's dad, aren't you? Aren't you? Aren't you? <laughs> so the, the the table has turned and fantastically so because in terms of you know uh, being recognized or being famous he is like at a different stratosphere than me because he is world renowned particularly in the far east and uh, in america and and you know and all over europe so look he's done a fantastic job and he started off with literally you know he's dyslexic and he's just a, he's just a, he's just a genius yeah i'm not saying that on that Oh, a big, big headed way because he's kept his feet on the ground massively. And, and that uh, color block patchwork cardigan that that uh, Harry Styles sported, I mean, he's been quite magnanimous with that. If you go onto JW Anderson's website, you can download a pattern for it so you can knit it for yourself. That's right. And and uh, and fairness to him, he you know he, he he thought of that through the pandemic and you know we wanted to just brighten people's lives up because he's always kind of thinking outside the box and that's you know he, he would be a trendsetter um but you know in fairness to him he was home at christmas there and he's still married johnny he's just he just hasn't changed he's he's on a different wave you know a different wavelength but Certainly, he's done really well from something. And I guess going to uh, one of one of his um, shows, Willie, he probably brings a Joe Schmidt level of intensity to everything, does he? Is it nothing left to chance? It's actually the same intensity. Would you believe it's the same sort of intensity that I would have gone through for a game, whether it was coach or playing? You have your you have your your, your training, your build up, you do your patterns, you do all the things to prepare for it. 
you're nervous the night before, you make sure everything's in order, you get the last week bits in order, so you get your team talk, you get your models ready, you get the dust knocked off, you get the thing ironed, and you get it, you know, steam ironed, and then you say, where you go and perform, and that's like a absolutely sort of you, you know, upward sort of rush of emotion and adrenaline, and then it's over, and you're saying, "How did I do?" I read the paper, <laughs> and it's so, and it's you're deflated for a couple of days afterwards because the, the adrenaline is gone and that voice is gone. That's just, it was so like playing, you know, international rugby or any. You know, top, top rugby life, yeah. Now, has he approached his dad to be possibly, you know, a model for some of the older gentlemen clothes, really? Maybe? I don't know. Well, I can see you. Well, Heather has done great out of it. She's got a wardrobe of handbags and bits and bobs. <laughs> I'm very lucky because uh, belts are universal and they, 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 you don't have to wear too much because it's the only thing that fits me from his stuff. A belt. <laughs> <laughs> oh. no, he's doing great. And then my other son Thomas, who played for Ulster and Connacht, he he works from now. He's um, uh, he's the, the operations manager over in London for JW Anderson, and he's making my daughter's wedding dress. Oh, wedding later on the year, Chloe, in uh, in August. So that's I guess. I hope, I hope that's a freebie, is it? Pardon? I hope that's a freebie for him. I think right. so, but if it wasn't a free base, you probably need to take out a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, I'll need a mortgage to pay for the beer at Murrayfield at the weekend, and if it be keeping the prices up, but then that'll be something unreal. So, but uh, well, look, Willie, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great chat to you. I said the book Crossing the Line um, is well worth a read, fantastic. And again, just thanks for all the memories in the chat today. So, thank you very much. And it's great to talk for to, to a couple of men from from this part of the world as well. And guys, I hope to maybe bump into you at some stage, uh, whether an international or wherever, you know. Well, you'll certainly be head and shoulders above everybody else there. Well, that's for sure. Like, so. <laughs> well, look here. <laughs> and, uh, maybe I'd, I'd love to get back. I got I went to Aberdeen one time. You know, we, we played Japan there and I think we beat them 103 0 That's right. Yeah, remember um, that. I was coaching then with Scotland. We were starting to do offloading and all those things with Scotland at that stage. The rugby here, hopefully, almost less than well, they will be, but it's a very, a very posh group of rugby people here, the grammar school, etc. So, but um, you'd be most welcome, Aberdeen and Willie, and I'm sure we'll get you a pint somewhere, like for sure. Um, thank you very much. All right. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye, Terry. Bye So, there we go. Yeah. Uh, he could have spoken for another hour there, Terry. I think so. I mean, we, we didn't give him a time, but I think he would have gone on longer. But I thought he, he coaches um, school rugby on a, in the afternoon during the week. So um, he was coaching Rainey, which is a school, a small school in Barbary, which is a school in Northern Ireland. So he's still involved with that. And um, I thought he's going to be at the Viva Stadium this weekend. And then he's going to be in was it Milan, he said he's going to, or no, Paris. Yeah. For some fashion show. So two different worlds, completely miles apart there. So, but, uh, yeah. But uh, I mean, there, there's different worlds going on where, where he lives as well, isn't he? Because uh, um, he is a guy who um, he kind of crosses boundaries a lot, doesn't he? Uh, both in terms of uh, uh, you know the legal boundaries, but also um, he has very close associations with different sports in Northern Ireland, including the GAA, which you know is not something that you might have expected from um, somebody with a, with his background.
No, no, I think we, we talk about that. You know, he's a very, yeah, and obviously Northern Ireland's got obviously a lot of problems, and, and it's interesting in his book. One of the story he talks about is the there's a chapter called the Red Hand, which obviously you know for me when I saw the headline was obviously the Ulster Red Hand, but also Tyrone Gaelic Association had the Red Hand on their logo. Um, so you know he, he is very connected into that sort of thing, which is I say it's very unusual, and the two sports are certainly miles apart. Um, I certainly. I'd never ever been to watch Gaelic in Tyrone. I've been to see it since, but I've never. When I was at school, you just you didn't do that, you know. So yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, the fact these games are now being played uh, in a lot of schools, you know, side by side, really in Northern mm. Ireland, it can only be a good thing. Uh, not a great fan of GAA myself now, but <laughs> I well, think it's good. I've kind of got into watching it because obviously Tyrone won the All Ireland last year, so I did watch that, and it is a. It's a strange sport. I mean, it's a very entertaining sport for sure. The, the rules are grey areas, I think, a lot of them. So, <laughs> and it hasn't, unlike rugby, which has become, you know, very, very controlled and some of the, the tackling and the head injuries at Gaelic, I think possibly less so. So maybe it's to come, but um, entertaining for sure. So. Yeah. And um, just on the Six Nations, Terry, who's your um, top pick to win it this year? <sighs> I don't know. Well, he thought France. I think he's probably France would definitely be the favourites. I think for this year, I think. I think. I don't know. Ireland have got Wales at home. They've got Scotland at home. They're away to France, away to England, which is tough. Yeah. So I think France might just win it. I think by a few points. I think, and then it'll be Ireland, maybe, and maybe Scotland. I think Scotland could, depending if they beat England on Saturday, it'll be a good one. Yeah, and uh, I think France as well. I don't think there'll be a grand slam this year. I think the the teams are you know quite close in terms of their capabilities. Yeah. Um, Ireland have got a habit of um, uh, you know showing up for the autumn tests and then you know choking a wee bit when it comes to Six Nations, relatively speaking. So yeah, uh, I could I could see Ireland doing the triple crown of all the home nations. So I could I could see them beating all England, Scotland, Wales this year. I think definitely. Yeah. So, but and I'm looking forward to. It. Going back to Six Nations, obviously with fans again, uh, Murrayfield at the weekend, so it should be good. Yeah, well, you'd be reporting back from Murrayfield for us in the next one, Terry. Um, yeah. A couple of things just to wrap up today. Um, uh, Johnny Greenwood and Tom York have just announced um, a tour with the drummer from Sons of Kemet. Uh, the band's called The Smiles. They're going to be playing in the Usher Hall in Edinburgh in June, amongst other places. Does this excite you? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I, no, it's Tom York, so people are obviously interested in that. I did listen to some of the stuff they'd streamed in it. I, I, it's like most Radiohead stuff, or most of Radiohead, they, you did listen a few times to get into it. And I'm sure it will be very interesting, But because you, you're quite a Radiohead fan, Michael. Uh, I am, yeah. And uh, Well, I, I was just saying to somebody this morning that I haven't actually seen uh, these guys playing indoors since the night that Celtic got beaten by Porto in the UEFA Cup final. Remember oh, the Mourinho Porto yeah. uh, team? So that's a very long time ago. It was the Hail, Hail to the Thief tour. Uh, so that was the last time I saw them indoors. Uh, and okay, it's not Radiohead. And I don't know if they're going to do any Radiohead stuff, but uh, it should be a good night out. I was slightly more excited to hear that Saxon were playing. <laughs> and Aberdeen in November, by the way. Yeah, we might get Biff on, Terry. I, I, that's, I mean, that was my first thought. I thought I, I've seen Saxon in the Macefield Leisure Centre in Belfast, and they were fantastic wear very tight trousers when I remember yeah I was just going to say that should be the first question uh, have you still got those white spandex uh, well, trousers and can you still fit in them well what a thought so but anyway yeah so <laughs> there we go 
<laughs> yeah, and um, one little uh, addendum to the Spotify um, spat that's been going on the, the last couple of days, which we covered in the last episode. Uh, Steve Albini's been tweeting about it last night, Terry, and um, he, he just comes across as being decent skin, doesn't he? Yeah, he said he, 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 his, his mantra is not to rip off artists. He doesn't see why he should take, I guess, some sort of, you know, revenue beyond what the work he does. He gets paid for the hours he works and he's happy with that. And he could have made a lot more money. Talk about Nirvana, you know, the way it was, you know, if you look at the royalties work, he hasn't taken that. So uh, fair play to him. There must be, what's 15 different tweets all one after the other. Um, so, um, yeah, comes, that certainly was very well written this morning, I have to say. So, that's so. Yeah. Um, so I, I think what we need to do is uh, to uh, basically take this podcast off Spotify and then we can tweet about the fact we haven't taken a penny revenue from, from the podcast. So podcasts can go from strength to strength. Well, so first thing I did this morning, and I noticed I haven't done it yet, but I'll do it. I noticed that Steve Albini has got his message icon open in, in the Twitter so you can message him. No, I can imagine there's been thousands of people messaging, so maybe leave it till tomorrow. But I thought I would at least throw out there that, you know, for not for profit, not for anybody at all, really. Um, would he want to chat? But um, yeah, we could we could take it on Spotify. Actually, it's hard enough to get it on Spotify in the first place. So <laughs> I'm not sure how you go about taking it off. They're making money out of us, Terry. We're not making a red cent, and those guys will be making oh, money. You could maybe write him a letter saying, Dear Spotify. Please take it off. Yeah, sort off. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we'll see how we get on with that, but we'll see. So yeah, good. Uh, okay, that just about wraps up the show for this week. We've already got an interview in the can, don't we, Terry? Oh, we've got a, we've got one coming up. We're doing one um, uh, at the end of the week as well. So Indeed. Uh, so enjoy this one for sure. Yeah. Till the next time, folks. See ya. <laughs>